2012 on radio.org.au Contemplating the face of Christ in the Eucharist with Father David Nugent Father David Nugent belongs to the missionaries of the Most Holy Eucharist based in the south of France a small community of priests, deacons and seminarians dedicated to loving and spreading devotion to the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist Good morning to you all. I'm an Irishman. I come from the north of Ireland and sometimes when I speak to, uh, I live in France, a community is based in the south of France. I have to begin my, my talks and my reflections with an apology for my accent because it can be very difficult for people to understand in French but uh, even in English I think it can be difficult for you. I'll try and speak clearly, uh, as Christian said, I was ordained uh, just over two weeks ago, so I'm still getting used to being this side of the, the anvil. It's, uh, it's quite a privilege to be ordained priest. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great joy and it's a, an, incredible, uh, it's an incredible vocation. I'd like to try and do justice to our thing today and I think I'll probably fall well short of that, contemplating the face of Jesus Christ in the Most Holy Eucharist. Uh, it's, it's beyond probably words, uh, but I'll try my best to put into to words um, my own testimony to a certain degree, but also um, just in terms of using the scriptures as well and some thoughts from Pope John Paul II and the saint called Saint Peter Julian Amar. I don't know if you, you know much about him, but I'll begin just with uh, a reading from the Gospel. It comes from the Gospel of Saint Luke, and it's verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he left everything and rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others sitting at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink? tax collectors and sinners and Jesus answered them those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance this episode in the life of Christ it comes at almost at the end of his first year of public life and Jesus, as we know, Jesus left Nazareth roughly about the age of 30. And he headed south from Nazareth to Judea. And he was baptized in the Judean desert, a place called Bethany, at the other side of the River Jordan. And we have that recounted for us in nearly all the Gospels, I think. Uh, he rises up 
out of the waters after he was baptized by St. John the Baptist. And these words, the first time that we hear the voice of the Father, they are echoed for all to hear. And the Father simply, uh, with his voice, he says, This is my Son, the Beloved. My favor rests on him. And Jesus rises out of the waters and he goes into the Judean desert where he is tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. He returns. Uh, there's an encounter with John the Baptist, and if I have time, I'll maybe come to that uh, moment when John the Baptist looks hard at Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Christ, then we have in uh, St. John's Gospel, chapter 1, we have Christ then calling his disciples, and he calls five disciples. Uh, they go to Cana in Galilee, and then Christ goes to the temple. In Jerusalem, he casts out the money changers, and then, uh, in if we follow St. John's Gospel, he has an encounter with Nicodemus. He has an encounter with a woman at the well. But in St. John, St. John's Gospel, it says that because of the jealousy of the Pharisees, Christ had been evangelizing in Judea. But because of their jealousy, he moves back to Galilee, and he goes. Again to Cana, there's an incident uh, with a man in Cana who comes from Capernaum, pleading Christ to heal his child. And then Jesus goes uh, to Capernaum after this. And we have from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1, we have what happens when Christ is in Cana. And just to, to introduce what I want to say about the face of Christ, by contemplating the face of Christ, Sometimes we, it, it's in the scriptures, but it sometimes misses us that uh, Christ is, if you like, it's a, an analogy, but when he leaves Nazareth, he leaves that hidden state, that state that we might say that he occupies when he's in our tabernacles. This hidden state, present, incarnate and uh, available for adoration but when Christ leaves the tabernacle and comes onto our altars and comes into our monstrances and is present uh, in that glorified state it can be compared to Christ leaving Nazareth and going to Capernaum or going uh, into to Judea to evangelize and to, to preach, and to teach, and to heal. And so Christ, the real presence of Christ, especially when Christ is, uh, is exposed publicly, demands a response, but it produces a response. And so Christ, we see this in his public life, that there's this power that is manifested in the world when Christ comes publicly to be known to make himself known and it is, his, it is his father that exposes Christ publicly it is the father who says this is my son the beloved and then Jesus as he continues in his mission in Capernaum 
And there are a number of other episodes that happen in the Gospel. He returns to Nazareth. He's rejected at Nazareth. And we know the incident where uh, at Nazareth he, he, he stands in front of the people and he says, Today in your hearing the scriptures are fulfilled. And they want to cast him over the, the cliff that Nazareth is built on. And he then comes back to Capernaum. And immediately before this incident with uh, Matthew, with Levi, the tax collector, Christ, uh, there's an, a man who's uh, lowered before Christ through the roof. And so you have the idea, you know the, 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 the scripture as well. Christ is surrounded and pressed upon by so many people. And, but in this particular regard, these people that come and they lower a paralytic through the roof. And Jesus heals the paralytic. And he has another encounter with the Pharisees. So that's just the context to what happens here in Luke 5. And in Luke 5 it just begins by saying that after this, so that's just what I've described, he went out. And so again we have this idea that Christ leaves the house and he comes out. And so he comes in the same way that he comes onto the altar. That he comes to be present in monstrance in a public fashion but with with an intention to do something and so it says he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi and with uh, there's so many great saints in the life of the church but St. Thomas Aquinas he speaks about this uh, power if you like or this agency in Christ which is before everything else. So he is the eternal word. And as the eternal word, what St. Thomas says about that is that before he even created you, he loved you. And before he called you or gave you grace uh, to come to know him, he loved you. Before he redeemed you, he loved you. So this primacy of love that is in God eternally becomes incarnate in Christ and becomes, if you like, in his gaze. It's something that is in him. But because it becomes present in time and space, when Christ looks at someone, this eternal love is what is uh, present. And it has a power, there's a power in Christ's gaze to, to convert, to change, but to allow who he is looking at to reciprocate with the grace that is in his gaze. And so he looks at Matthew, simply looks at him. He's really present, he's publicly exposed, and he gazes at Matthew. And then he says, follow me. And then it's Matthew's response. And Matthew leaves everything and follows him. I'd like to just take some minutes to try and just ponder a little bit on this grace. And then to try and capture that uh, in terms of contemplating the face of Christ. If I can do it personally 
first, it may be easier. In 1993, I'm no spring chicken. I, I, didn't, I didn't come immediately to Christ. Uh, I, I had a different idea about my life when I was young. And so, when I was about 18 or 19, I, I went to university in Belfast. That was in 1992. I was uh, 18 uh, and I studied economics and uh, I, well, at that moment I did have a prayer life and I did was very open to, to whatever God wanted me to do but I had very many desires in my own heart, desires for, for, for things like a career and, and desires for, for a relationship and for a wife family, those desires were strong and then as, as I went to university those desires that, that we all have they, they become expressed in our life and so as university as maybe you know it's a very social place and so going out and socialising and, and different things, they became part of my life and, and prayer sort of waned a little bit because the desire wasn't as strong as it as it once was. So, in uh, I finished my degree and I, I decided, maybe a little bit like Levi, to become a tax collector. I became an accountant. I began working in a tax department, and then into audit, and eventually into uh, consultancy. And I spent eight years as an accountant, um, and with a very fixed idea of what I wanted in life and some of that was it's not so much money it's part of it but the desire that's there is perhaps for for security that we have to make for ourselves and also a very strong desire at that moment in my life was to get married and have a family and I was in a relationship for most of my 20s with with a, with a woman and I was very serious about that and wanted to get married. So a little bit of context. 1993, there was a Eucharistic Congress and in 1993, Pope John Paul II expressed his desire and his vision for the church and he did that in, uh, in Seville and he said that his vision for the church was that for each parish to have what he called permanent exposition of the Most Holy Eucharist. Each parish should have a place where Christ's chapel, or at least a room where Jesus Christ is adored day and night by the faithful of, of a parish. And in 1993, my home parish, they, they, they took that grace that came from the Holy Father and they organized Eucharistic adoration in such a way that there was day and night someone before Christ in the Most Holy Eucharist. I was oblivious to all that. I was living in Belfast and it had bird no relationship to me whatsoever. But my mother, uh, she lived about uh, 60-70 yards from the adoration chapel. It made a big difference to her 
So she began to adore daily and began to, to offer herself to re replace others who couldn't come to adoration. And so she began to spend a lot of time contemplating the face of Christ, whether she knew it or not. He was looking at her, she was looking at him, and this grace in her heart for Jesus in the most holy Eucharist was intensified. And she was happy also to be praying for her children, and I being one of those was susceptible to a grace. <laughs> um, now what happened for me is I, and I, the reason I'm just trying to sort of use the word desire in a particular way because in terms of, of what's in the scripture that we've just read, it's very relevant. So this desire that we all have sometimes is ordered for things that it, it's not created for. Now, they might be good, and normally when we offer ourselves with our heart, it's called love. And so we can love lots of things. That's how we're created. And in that, sometimes, those things, we're always attracted to things that are good. We're never going to love anything that we think is going to be bad for us. But sometimes, things that we love aren't really good for us, but it can take time for that to be realized. And sometimes you give yourself over to things like a career, things like a job, or a person who you maybe shouldn't love. It's maybe not God's will. And so maybe that's what was happening to me, but I wasn't aware of it. The year 2000, a full seven years after uh, the Perpetual Adoration Chapel was opened in my hometown. Full seven years, I, I finished my, my accountancy exams, etc. And I was very happy and very content with life. And I wanted to get married. And I wanted to, uh, to have the career that I worked for. And I received uh, money, etc. at a level where I thought this this allows me now to really plan my life to buy a house and to, to have all the things that I desired, but in a worldly way, if I can say that. In the year 2000, I was in Rome and I was in St. Peter's Basilica on holiday. I just happened to be there because when you're in Rome, that's what you do. Now, I never lost the practice of. of going to Mass every Sunday. I would have walked 50 miles if need be to get to Mass. That's how I was brought up. But I did lose very much any sort of personal relationship with Christ. And for many years lived in a situation of doubt. Did he, was he really God's son? And did he really intend for for the church to be the church, the priest, all of those doubts that can come when you stop praying. That's the fruit of not praying, doubt. And so I had those in my mind, I was being influenced by the culture in a very strong way, and perhaps uh, it's, it's the case for many, many people that are influenced very strongly by our culture. It's a very strong culture that we live in. The year 2000, I happened to be in, in St. Peter's Basilica, actually in the Piazza, and 
just so happened God would have it. I was at one of the barriers and as, as I arrived for Mass, I could see maybe almost it seemed like a mile away Pope John Paul II and he was about this big but I could notice that uh, in terms of his health I hadn't been aware of anything in the church really for a number of years it's like the Pope is very sick he, he's, he's got Parkinson's disease and he's bent over so I had this sort of would they not just let him retire that was my thought so like poor Pope but he got into the Pope mobile and celebrated the Mass and received Holy Communion. The Pope got in, and I was there with my girlfriend at the time. The Pope got into the Pope mobile and he, he made a tour of St. Peter's. And as he came into my vicinity, I mean literally, he just passed in front of me, there was a light that came off the Holy Father. I could see it, not so much with my eyes, I could feel a light my soul and it was powerful and I knew that I was in the present presence of a saint so this blast of holiness it's like sandblast into the soul just woke me up out of whatever sleep I'd been in and that was at about 12 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and at that very moment my mother was doing her rota of adoration in our man. And so she, I'm sure, I'm, I'm positive, that she won for me this grace to be in the right place at the right time. How many saints do we have in our history and in our time but to, to have something come at the order of grace from a saint into to my soul? I was converted more or less on the spot. And so I received a light and a deep light and a deep interior light, almost like a demand coming uh, from Jesus Christ. And it was just very clear. Are you going to pray or are you not going to pray? Are you going to give yourself over to prayer or are you not? And it was immediately, well, I have to pray. So that was the grace. I have to pray. And I made a promise to Christ. I said, I will offer you one hour every day. I made that promise. And that promise was true. So I knew it. I was convicted in it. I said, I'm going to do this no matter if it kills me. I'm going to offer Jesus an hour every day. And immediately, because of that promise, which comes from His grace, I received my baptismal grace, which is the faith. So in my soul, I believed, I believed that Jesus Christ was alive. And so all those doubts, they went like that. Jesus Christ is living. That is the grace of our faith. He's resurrected. He didn't stay in the tomb by his own power. He rose and he walked out of his own tomb as Almighty God.
So that conviction came into my soul and was so strong that it just propelled me to prayer and it propelled me to adoration. And so as I came back to Rome, as I came back to Ireland, I sought out Christ in adoration. So I said, Lord, I'm going to give you a holy hour every day, but might as well do it in the adoration chapel. I wasn't really aware of what adoration was. I just knew that my mom went there and all of the people in the parish who prayed went there. I had an idea that like I was at devotions when I was young, Sunday devotions, so that when we came in in front of the Lord, we would do a double genuflection. That was really the distinction. I didn't have much of a knowledge. I was coming to this fresh. And so I would read and do different things as normal, but I would just give the Lord my time. That's how I was trying to, to express my love and my faith. I said, Lord, all I can give you is just this time. I'll just fix it. The minute I come in to the minute I go, it's yours. But I'll fix it and I'll give it to you. And so I wasn't contemplating the face of Christ in maybe in a, in a conscious way, but he was looking at me. This is the real difference if we look at this text from Matthew. After this he went out and saw a tax collector. I was very much still convicted in my career and in getting married, but for a year, and for about an hour a day, Christ was looking at me. I wasn't really looking back in any sort of meaningful way. And so, just to, to try and put this into to, to context of conversion, I had received the grace to be restored in my faith, but there is a special grace that Catholics have. It's available to them all, but maybe not all use it. It's a real deep Eucharistic conversion that's available through Holy Communion and adoration, but it is it draws us into the centre of our faith. I hadn't got that yet. Um, but it came. And if I try and say how it came, I don't know exactly when it came, but it came. And I'll use just an analogy from a saint, St. Peter Julian Amard. So St. Peter Julian Amard, uh, he founded a, a religious order uh, called, uh, we call it now the Blessed Sacrament Fathers, but it, it was an order dedicated to Eucharistic adoration. And so he had many clear thoughts on adoration that help us understand what actually happens when Christ is being uh, exposed to public adoration and then being adored and he, as a saint, had a special grace. And so just to maybe try and give some context to this so that uh, we can understand it a bit better, and I can explain it a bit better. Um, Christ, through his church, when the Pope writes an encyclical, like if we look at Ecclesia uh, de Eucharistia, in paragraph six, of that document, the Pope says that the purpose of the document is to rekindle in the church universal uh, a Eucharistic amazement. A Eucharistic amazement. 
And he says that the program for this is the contemplation of the face of Christ with Mary and to be put out into the deep of the new evangelization. And at the end of that document, he says in order to do this, we need to find a lived reality, i.e. the saints, we need to look to the saints, how did they live this, how did they express this Eucharistic amazement. And so the church has an apostle of the Eucharist that we can look back and see that the Lord prepared the church by means of this saint's ministry to, to come to this Eucharistic amazement. And so just to, to, to introduce just a couple of thoughts from St. Peter Julian Amard. So St. Peter Julian Amard received a grace, an extraordinary grace as a saint to found an order dedicated to Eucharistic adoration. But prior to this, he received an, an extraordinary grace uh, to understand renewal by means of Eucharistic adoration and conversion by means of Eucharistic adoration. And he did this through really praying and searching. He was a priest in Lyon in France and it was before he, he received the call to find an order but already his life was centered on Christ in the tabernacle. He was centered on Christ but he was disturbed by his times we think sometimes we live in times of crisis, but he lived in times of crisis, especially after the French Revolution, which decimated uh, the church in France. Uh, and especially at this point in time where there was a degree of renewal, but it wasn't complete and by, well, by no means uh, really in the life of the church. He could see a secularism in priests that frightened him and in the laity a complete indifference to the truths of the Catholic Church. So he was praying about this and said, well, how do we combat this? He prayed long and hard. The Lord revealed to him in prayer what was needed and he, he comments on it like this. He said, what we have in the church and I think this is relevant right now to us. He says, we have a universal indifference. He calls it a terrifying indifference to the truth. There's been a loss of love. And this loss of love for Jesus Christ is the result of then a loss of faith. So as he's contemplating this, he says, well, what can we do? He said, you can't deal with it intellectually. That's where he comes to this conclusion. You can't combat it intellectually because it's to do with the loss of love. He says, you need fire. That's what the Lord put in his heart. You need fire to combat indifference. And that fire was given to his Eucharistic fire. This Eucharistic fire that comes when Christ is put on an altar combats indifference. It converts hearts that are cold, it draws hearts to Jesus, but it sets them alight. As Christ says, I've come to cast fire on the earth. And so that's what St. Peter Julian Amard, that revelation that, that was given to him by the Lord, and that, that's what he devoted his life to doing, casting this fire through adoration, 
through the foundation of an order, but also he had a final revelation that, that I just want to then bring back to, to the reflection. So this has to go everywhere. This isn't just for priests. This is for everybody in the Catholic Church. They have to come and adore Christ. It has to go to parishes. It has to go wherever there's a tabernacle. Christ has to be brought out of the tabernacle. And he says, when we do that, we put Christ to work. And just to come back to, to what I was trying to explain in my own life, we put Christ to work. And so I was in an adoration chapel when I received this deeper Eucharistic conversion, if you like, but a fire that takes hold of the heart and the soul that comes from Christ. It's not coming from anybody else. We can get converted by saints, but in order to be completely on fire, we need Jesus to do that. And we need Jesus in the Most Holy Sacrament of the altar to do that. And he does that. And so, where I was adoring, there was eight years of continuous adoration, day and night. And so, this is what I, I just want to introduce as a thought. It's just a thought that I have, a pious thought. It's not a teaching of the church. That that adoration increased the light that comes out of his face. That adoration, hour after hour, intensifies the light that shines in Christ's face. And so as I come into his presence in year eight of that adoration, that fidelity, day and night, people getting out of their beds in the middle of the night to come to Christ, where does that grace go? It goes for souls, it goes into souls. Christ converts. And so here in the gospel that we've read, it comes after a period of time where Christ is surrounded by his disciples, surrounded by those who love him and are, are, are truly adored him. The, the apostles adored the Lord in his mortal body. We adore him in his glorified, hidden state. But it's the same relationship. And so Christ looks at Matthew. It takes, for me it took a bit of time, but that looking back came on a given moment in time. And so it was a Wednesday evening and the Lord had been putting my fire into my heart through adoration. But on a Wednesday evening I had I'd been faithful to my hour for, for about a year, every day. So it didn't come for hour. How many hours is that? Maybe three, four hundred hours of adoration where you're just testing your faith. You're just coming in and you're sometimes bored, distracted, etc. You're tested. Are you going to be? You're going to be faithful. Are you going to hold the grace that Christ is going to give you? So sometimes, by faith, Christ increases a capacity in us, so that He can pour in grace. And that's sometimes why we just have to sweat it out. As Padre Pio once said, someone asked him, "How do you pray?" He says, "I just fix the time." That's simply what he answered. He fixed the time. And so, so when we do that, Christ can increase the capacity of our souls and so that's what he was doing with me through uh, through adoring in this perpetual chapel of adoration i came before him one evening i was racked tired and all i wanted to do was go to bed and i worked i had a job to do i was working uh, for a government 
of still working for a private uh, enterprise, but they sent me out on a because Northern Ireland they changed all of the government departments, so they needed a lot of accountants. I was working on the other side of Belfast, but at about a two-hour commute, morning and night, and I had to work very long hours. I came home one night, and I was tempted just to said, the Lord will understand. I thought, well, maybe he won't. <laughs> so I, I, I got out of the, uh, the house and went down to the Adoration Chapel and went in and bowed down. I was going to do my usual sort of prayer routine. Just as I looked up, I just knew I was being looked at. My soul was penetrated by these divine eyes that are present in the tabernacle that come out to look at us when he is uh, put into a monster. These eyes that are incarnate, divine gaze that's incarnate in a person, in a face, he's there, present. That face is present, the right hand of the Father, rose up, ascended into heaven, and is present in the most holy Eucharist. You can find it nowhere else. That face that uh, looked on Matthew, that face that looked on John, Peter, all the apostles, is present in the Most Holy Eucharist and looks at us. Now, it takes some time for us to come to know that. But when you come to know that, that is a deep Eucharistic conversion. It happens all over the planet right now in Adoration Chapels. I'm just giving you, the Lord's allowed me to come and give you a testimony, but you probably know this better than I do. Um, this being seen, let's put it like that, being seen Eucharistically changes everything in the heart. And the minute that Jesus did that and allowed me to know that, that he saw me, it was only then did I hear the words, follow me. I didn't hear them here, pressed into the heart, same way his face is impressed into the soul, so that the soul knows the beloved in adoration. His words, they become impressed into the heart, and he just said, follow me. And then we have these, this other aspect of the text that happens in Matthew. It says in Matthew, uh, just take it from the Greek, because the Greek has it in the present tense, it says Matthew, abandoning all things. This deep Eucharistic conversion that is impressed into the soul by the face of Christ, that draws the soul to contemplate the face, is given also with the grace to abandon all things. So the soul, and it's in the case of St. Matthew, he has, to, he has to, his desires have to be, be reordered. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, one of the, the church fathers, says that in this moment, Christ snatches Matthew from the worship of malice. It's an interesting way of putting it. Matthew is given over to things that don't count. He is given over to money and to other people's money, which Sometimes people have that as a career. Uh, they're given over to wanting other people's money. And so Matthew, and maybe also other desires in his heart, but this 
impression of Christ's gaze. Because it comes first, but sometimes miss it. Christ sees him, and Matthew has to look back. That is what has to happen at this order of grace. He has to look back, and then those words, follow me. But then there's a grace that comes with that. And that grace is a process. And all of us are called into that process. It's called perfection. No one can escape it. And it's because we're human beings, we have a body and a soul. And so there's two aspects to that perfection. One is of the soul, and the other is of the body. And we see this in the text. Abandoning all things is of the soul. It's the soul becoming attached to the Christ. And the Christ who is present in our midst. That's what happens in the life of Matthew. It's not just Matthew standing up and walking after Christ. It's in his heart being attached to Jesus Christ. That's what happens when he abandons all things. And every soul is called to this an abandonment. It's vocational in each one of us. Some of us are called to be married. But still an abandonment of things that are going to be obstacles to our perfection. Sometimes those are things like alcohol. And in many young people today, uh, it's, it's things that come through the internet. Things like pornography is rampant in, in, our, in our society. It's things that only Christ can free us from right now. We don't have a prophet or a saint who's going to do this work. But we have Jesus Christ and we need no one else. And when he's present this way on the altar, this is what he does. He helps us overcome these things. He gives us the grace to abandon all things and the soul can choose him. And in that choice, the soul can contemplate his face. But it is a choice for holiness. And then we have in, in the text, Matthew rises up. That's bodily perfection. And so Christ, when he says on the last day, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will raise them up. It's got to do with him coming into us, his flesh taking union with our flesh, and on the last day, our bodies will rise up. And so that grace is communicated also through Christ's real presence. So this contemplation of the soul, of the real presence of Christ, this gaze into his, his, his eyes, looking at his face, also has an impact on our bodies. Purity, and purity of, of heart, mind and body. So Matthew rises up out of impurity. Impurity for things that aren't worth his love. And this is the grace that Christ gives when he's present in adoration and for those who uh, become convicted by his presence. And just another aspect to this, I don't know if I'm running out of time, but if someone can, can just uh, flash my, I think of time, so I'll go on and just continue. This abandoning all things, for me, like I knew I was called after that contemplation of the face of Christ reordered in life but I'm still very much with someone and so it's a moment where you just 
you're looking at the Lord and you're saying, how is this going to work out? Because I, I don't, how can I, I've been with this person for seven, eight years. How am I going to break this news? What do I do? And so it's not for everybody, but each of us maybe have some degree of witness to give to the truth vocationally. And that sometimes comes with an obstacle that has to be overcome, surmounted. Um, and all I could do, I had two ports of call. I just said, well, right, I'm going to adore more. And let's see if that can help work this thing out. Because I knew I was called to be a priest. And then the other aspect of that, abandoning all things. Well, I did that to a person. I gave all that to Our Lady. I abandoned all things to Our Lady. And so when I did that, I was faced with what seemed to me to be something impossible. I was thinking, I can't do this because my heart was still attached to that relationship. It wasn't as if the Lord works miracles that doesn't involve pain and suffering. Those things are part of being a Christian, a part of following Christ. We have to endure, we have to be patient, we have to, to take up our cross and follow him. But, so I had this awareness, this is gonna really hurt this other person. And that was what, what was weighing most on me. It was gonna hurt me too, but to break a heart isn't easy. To break two hearts, my own in the process isn't easy. But we need we can't do this on our own, whatever it is for Christ. But these lessons are learned at the beginning. So Christ shows us a way, a path to him. And so that path to deeply because I had a deep draw to contemplate his face after that moment of pure divine grace. That, that I knew was vocationally, vocationally in my heart. I wanted, I wanted to be dedicated to Jesus in the most holy Eucharist. Because that was Jesus. There's no point making a distinction that we don't have to make. That is Jesus. I wanted to be dedicated to him with my life. That's the grace that he gave. But in order to do that, we need to overcome a lot of things. This abandonment. So I turned to Our Lady. I consecrated myself to Our Lady. And within, I'm not saying, within five weeks of doing that, the path was opened. Now the pain wasn't diminished, but the path, found myself on that path that was going to take me to a seminary. And that took two years. But that path began when I invoked Our Lady. And so it then says, and abandoning all things and rising up, he followed. It's one of the great graces from contemplating the face of Christ is vocational. So we are we are detached in our souls so that we can gaze with a, a true a love on that face that is gazing on us. We can that. The soul, in order to contemplate, does have to be free from certain things that will, uh, that will block that gaze. 
because it, it has to happen at the order of love and truth. And so that is this abandoning and this rising up and this following. These graces, they, there's a certain sequence to them that come and we can say there's a certain order to them. Now if I just move into the text and then if I have time, I'll try and finish with just another gospel text that, that uh, takes out more deeply the idea of contemplating the face of Christ. But it says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. So one of the great fruits from contemplating the face of Christ, from just spending time in Christ's presence, for letting Christ first gaze on us, there's a purifying action that comes from that. Christ is purifying our souls, and when Christ purifies the soul, the soul increases in capacity. And then we're able to see more clearly He who is looking at us. And one aspect of that, we see it in what happens with Matthew or what happens with Levi. He made a great feast in his house. But there's a word, there are two words, for him. And so there's this purity of intention that is necessary to truly follow Christ. Purity of intention. We have to do things for him. And sometimes, and this is where we see it in the debate that follows with the Pharisees, we can get confused in what holiness means. Is holiness about fasting? Because that's what the Pharisees put to Christ after this account in the Gospels. It says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often. Hang on, I'm reading the Greek, sorry. And the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast? while the bridegroom is with them. So there isn't an idea that, that fasting isn't good. Fasting is very good and very necessary for the soul, but we have to do it for him. Our holiness, our lives have to be ordered to Christ and for him, and that has to be true in the heart. And in adoration, Christ is able to work with this grace. He's able to, to penetrate the heart, to make us detached so that our prayer can be really uh, penetrated, to make us in our bodies pure so that we can imitate him because he is immaculate, and then to help us vocationally be true to what he is calling us to. But then there's this other aspect that has to be in our heart every time we pray, to purity of intention. We have to do everything for him. That's what holiness is about. And so one of the things that, that came to me over a period of years after the Lord convicted me in this contemplation of his face, this Eucharistic grace, was that what is so important with Christ is friendship and intimacy. And that's, we have a word for that in the Catholic Church. It's called, it's called Holy Communion. And it's real 
Christ comes for this deep intimacy with us and a deep friendship and a communion of life. And that's why he's present and that's why he would wait 20 centuries for you if that was what is needed. He'll wait for you because of his love is eternal. He doesn't count it in days and hours and years. It's eternal. He will wait to the end of time for his soul so that he can just gaze on it and save that soul. St. Augustine says about this passage that, that we're, we're reflecting on. The Pharisees, when they grumble against Christ, you know, you're, you're Pharisees, and they are really grumbling against the grace to repent because they won't believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the good news that he's right in front of you. They won't believe that. They place all of their hope and trust in the law. And St. Paul says, the law can't save. It's the grace that comes from Christ. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And St. Augustine says, it's not the fact that Christ wants to eat with sinners that draws him to sinners. It's the fact that he can, can, he can convert them. And so Christ will wait to the end of time for each of us because he's got this power to convert, this power to change us. And that's exactly what he does in adoration when we come into his presence. He converts us by degrees, by grace. And he gives us these graces, this purity of intention to act for him. And as I'm saying, this grace draws us into a deep friendship so that holiness becomes something that is just centered on Jesus Christ. And as the Pope says, we contemplate the face of Christ with Our Lady. We don't have a better way of growing in holiness than seeking union with Our Lady. The Church teaches this. The Church is what the Church teaches us. And it's in a document called Spiritual Motherhood. And spiritual motherhood is very much part of Eucharistic adoration. Spiritual motherhood is what springboards vocations into the church. People who are sitting before the Lord, praying for priests, that's what will create vocations. And so one of the, the, the documents that was released recently uh, by the Congregation of Clergy calls the church back to this reality of spiritual motherhood. And uh, the, the, the Archbishop who, who it was, at that time he was the prefect, he's now the cardinal prefect, uh, or sorry, he was the secretary, he's now the cardinal prefect for the congregation of clergy, Cardinal Piacenza. He, uh, it was his inspiration that, that, um, that sort of gave the church this document, but the letter was written to bishops. The letter is quite profound, it was written to every bishop in the world, asking bishops to really understand the need for 24-hour Eucharistic adoration. The need in the church for this right now as a catalyst for the future of the church, for renewal and for a holy priesthood and a holy people uh, for Jesus Christ. But one of the things in that document is just that I want to, uh, to just uh, sort of draw out now as I come to finish. One of the things in that document is that we can't separate union with Christ from union with Our Lady. We can't do it. 
And so when we come to adore, when we come to contemplate the face of Christ, we have to do that with his mother, because she, in the, do in, uh, in the document, uh, in the encyclical on the, on the Eucharist, Ecclesia de Eucharistia, what Pope John Paul II says at the very end, he says, we, this gaze that we have to, 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 to give to Christ, this gaze of, of being uh, loved by Christ through, through him looking at us and us looking back, we have to do this with Our Lady. She is the model of uh, contemplating the face of Christ. She has, we know what a face is like. We know if you know someone well, you can tell immediately their emotions from their expression. If you know them well enough, you can tell whether they're joyous or sorrowful, whether they are glorious, whether they are luminous. So those mysteries of Christ's face, it's a mystery, they're hidden in this contemplation with Our Lady. We come to, if you want to know Jesus Christ, get to know Our Lady, get to be in union of heart with Our Lady, and ipso facto, you will be in union with Jesus Christ. It's not the healthy that need the physician, it's the doctor, knowing our need of Christ. That is what we have to, to, to trigger in ourselves through adoration this need to be at his feet because this this need which will uh, really uh, give us this holy fire uh, to, to, to then bring out into the world this need is something that the apostles had they had a need to be with Jesus Christ Matthew is the last apostle to be called by Christ all of the others are there. It comes at the end of Christ's first year of public life. But it's all about need. And Christ says that. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he comes to, to those who need him. Those who want him. Those who want to be with him. And just to finish, I know I've just a few minutes. just want to, to very briefly draw out the, the, the conversion of St. John the Apostle, because it comes at the very start. So Christ says the first will be, will be last, and the last will be first. So the last evangelist is the first apostle, the first evangelist is the last apostle, but the first apostle, by, by means of the tradition, is St. John. And to finish just with, with a thought on contemplating the face of Christ, his first encounter with Christ is face to face. It's all about Christ turning to him, and looking at him. And so it's the Baptist who, again, it's about looking at Christ. The Baptist, from his heart, it flows out. It's not a, a teaching, it's something that flows out of adoration. He says, Behold the Lamb of God as Christ passes in front of him. It's something that flows out of adoration. It's behold. So the Baptist, John the Baptist, is contemplating Christ. As Christ is present, not like all the other prophets before him who contemplated the real absence of Christ, they still point to Christ, but there's this hope that Christ will come. Christ has come, he's in our midst, and he's walking past John the Baptist, and he's behold the Lamb of God, our Saviour. We need to be saved, this idea of this need for Christ. He's here, he's here in our time, he's on our planet. 
He's here. And so this flows out of John the Baptist. It's heard by John the Apostle and Andrew the Apostle. And they run after Christ. And then Christ just turns to them. So it's his face that his face that he reveals. And just to finish right now, I'm finishing right now with this, the word adoratio, which Pope Benedict gave to, to, and we had a beautiful testimony about what happened in Cologne on World Youth Day. Adoratio, Pope Benedict spoke at World Youth Day about what adoration really means. To the mouth, intimacy with Christ, face to face. He said, if you want to understand what adoration is, it's this face to face encounter with Jesus Christ. I've run out of time. Thank you very much. Radio.org.au